If you have your Bibles, please open it to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 will be the text for us this evening. Verse 1 to 8. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to them, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Lord God, thank you for this time in your word. May you impress this narrative into our hearts and mind so that we can worship you better. Lord, help us see who your son really is as your son, the divine one the one that was with you from eternity past. Lord, I hope that we can continue to know more about your son and delight in him, be satisfied in him, so that we can glorify you in all that we do. Be with us this evening. Give us attentive hearts, minds, and ears. Allow us to to be conformed to the image of your son. Convict us of sin. Cause us to live holy lives. And this is in your son's precious name. Amen. Some of you in your life have encountered different people or circumstances that leave a lasting impression in your life. If it's you know, a person, sometimes it could be a mentor or a teacher in your life that have taught you profound lessons that you carry with you for the rest of your life. You sometimes, when you're making decisions, you think back at some of the things that your discipler or your mentor have taught you, and whether it's in the Christian realm or even in your work or whatever you're doing, there are sometimes the people that poured into you that you think about all that they've taught you. They, it's almost like they become part of you. The things that they say you know, echoes through your mind because they have left an impact in your life. Sometimes you've encountered a friend. You remember the first time you're meeting a person and how you guys became friends. And that person, even though you guys might not be able to talk for weeks or months at a time, the moment you guys reconnect, it feels like you guys are just picking up where you left off. You have this companionship, this friendship that lasts a lifetime. And that person, whoever that person may be, can influence you in a positive way. So some of you are married, and you remember the first time when you fell in love with your spouse. 
how you know that that person is going to be the one that I want to spend the rest of my life with. I'm going to invest my life in this person. I'm going to sacrifice for this person. I'm going to devote my life to this one person. Or it could be certain events in your life. There are happy times when you look back upon it have left a such impact in your life that you just look back on it, good things that make you smile or remember or even inspire you. Or even hard times. You look back at your life, there may be lessons that you learned, certain trials and tribulations that you had to overcome, and those lessons that you learned in those moments of difficulty has a lasting impact in your life. Whether it's certain people in your life or events in your life, there are events and people that can cause a paradigm shift in the way that you live. And there is no person or event in our life that should have a greater impact than when we encounter Jesus Christ. When the moment when we became a believer, the moment when we understand that we are sinners before a holy God, the moment that we understand God's love for us by dying on the cross for us, that he took away our sins, the moment that we understand the gravity of that love, that should impact us for not just this life, but the life that is to come. The book of Mark, we've been going through this for the last year or so, and and throughout this narrative, we're supposed to see our Savior. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In a lot of ways, every verse that comes after that first verse is to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we got to chapter 8, we saw these different miracles that Jesus has done, and it's supposed to authenticate the fact that he is not just a teacher. He is way more than just a prophet. He is the Son of God. He fed 4,000 people. He was able to heal the blind. And he's doing all of this to teach his disciples a valuable lesson. And even for us as readers, this would show us that this is the Christ. Chapter 8, verse 27, Peter, of 27 to 29, we, we, we are familiar with the story where Jesus asked the disciple, who do people say that I am? And people thought that he was like the second coming of Elijah or, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus switches the question to Peter, asking him, who do you say that I am? And he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And not long after that moment, that high point in his profession of faith, he falls, he fails, he stumbles. Because Jesus tells him what is going to happen to him, how he's going to have to suffer and be humiliated by the scribes and the chief priests, and he will be killed. And after three days, he will rise again. And Peter pulls him aside and has a little huddle with Jesus and tells him, hey, we're not going to go with that plan. That's a terrible plan. And you remember what Jesus tells him. He tells him to get behind me, Satan. He was at one point this, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the next moment, an agent of the devil. Then last time we went through the passage, we talked about what it, it costs to follow Jesus, that it is going to cost you. It's going to make, you're going to have to give up friends, you're going to have to give up your reputation. You're going to give up your life to follow Christ. And we get to this narrative here. 
where it builds on the fact that why we need to continue to trust and believe in this Jesus. So for our outline this evening, I'm just going to go through four scenes about Christ that's supposed to leave an impact in our life so that we can glorify him. Four scenes in this familiar text that's supposed to impact us so that we can live a life that will glorify him. And the first scene is this. We'll call the scene the promise. We'll call the scene the promise. Look at verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And you have to understand that when we see this text picking up from the last section, it wasn't like there was really a break. I know in our English Bibles we have this break, but it seems like in the original, it's that Jesus was saying, it was this ongoing dialogue that he has with his disciples. There was a multitude of people. He tells them the cost of following Jesus Christ. He was teaching them that some of these people that are here with him at this immediate moment will not see death until they see this event. Is he says, truly I say to you, this is it's like it's basically saying, I, amen, I say to you, this, is will, this will happen. This is a promise to the people that are listening that there's going to be a very unique event that will happen to some of them, and they will not die until they see this event. And this is some of these people, and it could be the disciples, and it could be the multitudes. But I think based on this context here, because it, who are standing here is most likely his own disciples, um, and they're not going to taste death until they see this. And you have to understand, too, that in the life of the Jewish mind, they were anticipating this. Every person that understood the Old Testament was waiting and anticipating for this day. And for Jesus to make this promise out loud, to say, There's, it's coming, it's going to be really soon, and some of you people are going to witness this event, it brought them great anticipation and excitement. Because a lot of people, from the Old Testament all the way up to Jesus, they they lived, they hoped, and then they died. They lived, they hoped, they, they, they were hoping for this moment, then they died. But Jesus is now making this definitive claim, claim that it's going to happen. And some of the people there are going to see this. They will, not be, uh, they will not taste death because the reality is for some of them, they are, they are going to die. But some of these people are not going to die but until they see this event. And if you were that lucky few that actually was able to see this, it's something that you anticipate because you know that nothing in life can happen to me until Christ fulfills this promise. And most likely there are skeptics, and some people probably did not think Jesus was going to do it. But he said that he's gonna, they're going to see the kingdom of God having come in power. He's telling them there's going to be this open manifestation of his deity. He's going to show them that he is God. The glory of Jesus will be fully known to some of the people there. And they anticipated, though I think they misunderstood it. Because when Jesus said this, they were under the impression that Jesus was going to go into uh, the, the kingdom or overthrow Rome and then rule and reign. Because when he said the kingdom of God having come in power, I mean, the people are there. Jesus has a follower. There's a place, the location, and the king is here. So all those, those three things are in the right place, but they, but they misunderstood because it was in the wrong time. 
And I think different theologians argue about this passage and what did Jesus mean? Because some people interpret it as during 70 AD when the temple fell. They saw the temple destroyed by Rome. They said, see, that's God's power here. God is demonstrating his power. He's destroyed the temple. It is complete. Then Judaism is over at this point. Others believe this is the second coming of the Savior. But I think in this particular text, is actually speaking of the transfiguration. Because in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke and Mark, they would, they would have this whole scene about, G, about Peter professing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And immediately afterwards, they will have this scene here. And I think as he's telling them, and I think Mark understood it, just like how Matthew and Luke understood that, it's not speaking of the temple being destroyed or the second coming, but rather it is speaking of the transfiguration that's going to happen in the next scene. Jesus told them that this is what's going to happen. Jesus promises that some of them will witness this, this power of, uh, of God coming. And this is a prophecy. And I do think it's transfiguration because in, earlier in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said that he had to die first. So it's obviously not speaking of, of the second coming, but rather it's speaking of the transfiguration. So this is a promise of the Lord that he's going to do this. That's the first scene. The second scene is this, is the unveiling. First scene is the promise. The second scene is the unveiling. Notice in verse 2, it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now, you'll see that it says six days later. If you are an adult too, you probably have to answer this question, this like theological tension here, because in the book of Luke, it says eight days later. Matthew says about six days later, and Mark says six days later. So how can that be? Liberal commentators will say that this is a, a contradiction in Scripture, that this is not accurate. See, we have these uh, three different Gospels, and they all say different things. And I think the answer to that question, of why is it six days here and why is it eight days here, is just really depending on when you begin to count. Because it seems like in the Gospel of Luke, he's speaking of when they make the promise and the travel time and the transfiguration. Here, it just seems to be the promise all the way to the transfiguration. So there, he's just speaking, it's just a matter of perspective here. When did they decide to count, it makes the difference. I think Luke counted eight because he started at a different time. And Mark says six, because he wanted to count it uh, after the promise. But Matthew says some, uh, six days later, so he's kind of like the lukewarm answer here. Sometimes six days later. And I think all three work out. It's not a contradiction because the events still take place. It's kind of like when we think about, when we say things like, is 13 days considered two weeks? Some of us will round the day upward because we'll say, oh yeah, it's about two weeks ago, or some of us will say 13 days ago. It's just, it's, just, it's just a matter of when you count and how you count it. But the general idea is still there, that, that six days after this promise that Jesus makes, Jesus takes these three disciples up there. These are the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and all of them have this unique relationship with Jesus here, and all of them will be used in a very unique way uh, throughout the apostolic age, Peter in particular, because he's the one who's really the one that wrote, well, he, he, he told the story to Mark, and Mark wrote this gospel out. So he's really recalling this event here. James, we know, is the apostle who wrote the book 
of the, the book of James, one of the first leaders in the uh, apostolic age in the church of Jerusalem. And we know John, he was the last living apostle. So he brought all these three with him. And then, and he said, brought up to high mountain. It's most likely the mountain that they went to is called Mount Hermon. Uh, they went up there alone. Uh, if you Google Mount Hermon, there actually is one in California, not that one, the one in the Middle East. Um, but yeah, they went up to this Mount Hermon, and, they, and Lucas said that they went up and were praying together, and they fell asleep. And at some point, as they were there in the middle of the night, Jesus transfigured before them. He changed. This word transfigured is, is the word that we get for metamorphosis. It's, he, just, he went from one state to another. He was looked human, and all of a sudden he started glowing in fact, this word is only used several times. I think it's only used four times in the entire New Testament. And it gives us a little bit of insight of what it's like for Christ and even for our own life. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's the same word here. It's to have your mind go from one state to another. That you, before you were saved, you thought a certain way. And then when you became... In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, sorry, chapter 2, verse um, 18, Paul writes again, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Same word here, but in, the, in this context of 2 Corinthians, he's talking about how sanctification. How when you are, before you were saved, you lived a certain way. Your whole lifestyle was for the world. And when you're saved, you go from one glory to another, that you're progressively turning more and more like Christ. This is the same word that's used here to describe Jesus. At one point, he had one state. He looked very, you know, wasn't impressive looking. And he started glowing. There was, a, there was a change, a visible change. And the disciples noticed this. And, he's, and, and they, they brought them into this state of shock. I would imagine, because in, book, in, in Luke's account of this scene, that they were sleeping, and usually we see this even later on when Jesus was in the garden uh, before his death, that they were sleeping. They should be praying, and then they're sleeping. And again, uh, we could be sympathetic to the disciples here, because I'm sure some of us, when we pray to the Lord, we end up falling asleep. So the disciples did that, and there was a blinding light that just woke them up. And it says in verse 3, And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launder on earth can whiten them. And this idea is it's, it's white, it's radiant. This is actually the same word that we would use in another context for glory, that Jesus Christ, when he transformed, he, he starts shining. There was this amazing shine and glow to him. And I do believe that this is a reference back to Psalm 104 when when it's describing Yahweh in this, it said, Blessed the Lord, O my soul, O Yahweh my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out the heavens like a tent curtain. 
I think when Jesus did this, was transfigured, it's foreshadowed here in Psalm 104 to let them know that Jesus and Yahweh are one and the same, that they are God. They are one God, the triune God or together. And it's revealed here. They see Jesus, and he's shining brightly, intensely white. This is something that they, that there's, there's, it's just shocking to see. It's hard to look at. You know, when you, I, I, the other day I was with my kids in my car, and I saw my son staring at the sun. I told him, stop staring at the sun. Stop looking at the sun. He just kept looking. I was like, no, you got to stop that. And if he, was, if he kept staring, I was going to just steer and turn the car away because he was just kept staring. I was like, you're going to go blind if you keep looking at the sun. And why does that happen? It's because when you look at something very bright, what happens in your eye is that the, the part of your eye just be, becomes paralyzed. And so when you, even when you close your eyes right after, it's like almost imprinted in, your, in the eye sockets. That's what I think was going on here. When they saw Jesus Christ, they saw his figure, it was shining bright. It was so bright that they didn't, they, they, even if they tried to close their eyes, they would still see his silhouette. It was intensely white. And I like how Peter described this, is that as no launder on earth can whiten them. You have to, and back then, there was no bleach. So the closest thing that they have to white, it might be off-white. And even in that sense, it wasn't going to be long-lasting because they're in a place in the Middle East. There's dirt everywhere. And it says that no longer can make this white. You can clean it as much as you want, but you can't make it any whiter. And this is a supernatural event that's going on, and they just couldn't describe it. And this is what we call the doctrine of accommodation. It's this idea that the Scripture uses language that just to kind of dumb it down for us to understand what's really going on. Like, we use imagery and illustrations to help us see and understand. I think this is what Peter is doing. It's, he's saying that it's as if a laundry on earth can, can, cannot whiten this. Like, there's no possible way. He's just grasping for words because of how brilliant Christ is. And again, we understand what this is like. Sometimes when you eat a very yummy food, you, don't, you can't really describe the flavor. You go, mmm. Right? You, just, you just make a noise. You can have like a whole bunch of degrees, but when you eat some food, you just say, wow, or mmm. You just make noises. Um, or if you look at a sunset, it's beautiful. You say, wow. You're amazed by it. Or for some of you that recently were married, or when you were married, you saw your bride come down, you just teared up. You didn't say anything. Words escape you because it's not really, you can't really describe it with words. You can only use like feelings to describe it. And I think this is Peter trying his absolute best to describe what he's seeing. It's like, it's, a, it's like as if a launderer cannot whiten anything like this. And there's this unveiling here, this moment that we see that Jesus Christ is truly God. And if they, were, if they ever struggled with evidence, that this is the greatest evidence that they can see and understand. And I've been saying this kind of throughout the series, that when the original writers, readers were reading this, they needed assurance. They needed comfort knowing that the God that they claim, Jesus who claimed to be God, that he is worth living and dying for. And in this brief moment, they're reading this and say, yeah, Jesus was transfigured. He's this, he is this brilliant being. He is divine. He is fully and truly God. And it's supposed to give them assurance 
that they were going to see this God one day. This unveiling that they have, this momentary unveiling is going to, is going to be, their faith is going to become sight one day. And when they see Jesus Christ, they're going to see him like it is revealed here in Mark chapter 9. So first we see the promise, then the unveiling. And the third scene, we'll call it the witnesses. The witnesses. Verse 4, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. Now this is I mean, like, I'm just trying to think, like, if I was in the apostle's situation, like, I was, I was praying, and then all of a sudden this bright light shows up. I open my eyes. Jesus is, is like, blinding me. Then all of a sudden, like, Moses and Elijah appears. And in the Greek, it's, I don't know why both the LSB and the NASB translate this way, but in the, in the Greek, it's actually saying Moses appeared and Elijah was with him, kind of like, you know, Moses, the main guy, and then the sidekick is here. But they're here with Jesus, and they're dialoguing with them. Now, if you find, if you ever buy those books of difficult questions in the Bible, one of those difficult questions is this, how does Peter know that this is Elijah and Moses? Did they, like, have name tags in Greek? Like, how do they know? I think the simple answer is just that Jesus was just talking with them, and he just said, hello, Moses, hello, Elijah, and just addressed them, or they're talking about something, they address each other by name. I mean, they, they, I mean, I don't think, I'm pretty sure Peter didn't have some omniscience or some weird psychic ability to read their minds, but I'm just, they're fellowshipping with one another, dialoguing, and then through just, through just the context of what they're saying, they picked up, this is Moses, and this is Elijah. And there's always questions like, why these two individuals? Why Moses and why Elijah? I think I have some clue in why it's these two, because there's a lot of similarities between these two individuals. Both of them, well, in a lot of ways, Moses, we'll start with Moses. Moses, we know Moses as the guy that gave the Torah, right? He's the writer of the first five books in the Bible. In a lot of ways, he was the chief of all the prophets, because he's like the first major character uh, for Israel, because he's the one who brought them out of Egypt. And Elijah, in a lot of ways, he, he's the greatest defender of God's word, Whereas Moses the one who brought them God's word, Elijah the one who defended God's word the best. Both of them were unique because both of them had an encounter with the Lord on a mountain somewhere. You, you, Sinai for, um, actually both of them, they, they, had, they were able to engage God in the cloud. Both of them had to engage false teachers. And both of them had to use supernatural acts. In fact, if you look at the totality of the scriptures, there are only several events or characters that have supernatural events. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and then the apostles. There aren't that many characters in the Bible that could do supernatural things. In fact, Elijah was so unique that even his death was, was different. Moses is the same way. Both of them have a very unique death. You, have, you remember in, in, at the end in Deuteronomy, uh, God, Moses wants to go into the promised land. God said, no, we're going to go for a little walk up in the mountain here. And, but Moses like pleading and wants to go and see this promised land. And God said, enough, we're, not, we're done talking about this. We're going to take a walk after you're done writing this book. And Elijah, he, was, he threw his cloak at his successor, Elisha, and a fire chariot came and took Elijah away. And, they, and he was left. They were both, and they were both gone. Both have this very unique ending to them. Both of them spoke to God face-to-face, not really face-to-face, but they encountered God at some point. And that's why they're such a unique figure. 
And why were they there? In Luke's account, it seems to indicate in Luke's account that they were talking about the coming death of Jesus. That they must be explaining to Jesus or just not or just dialoguing to Jesus or try to encourage him or strengthen him at some points because in the context it seems like it's going to be difficult. Both Moses and Elijah have been through very difficult things and both of them had to learn to trust the Lord and be obedient to the Lord. And I'm sure that they're just showing their own frailties to Jesus. And Jesus knows this. And the reason why, and what was really fascinating throughout my study in this is that this wasn't some sort of first time meeting between all three of them. When Elijah and Moses appear to Jesus. It wasn't like they're like, oh, hi, I'm Moses, I'm Elijah. Jesus had at some point in eternity from the Old Testament, from when they got to glory till now, had some sort of fellowship with them. This is a reunion of sorts. And they're talking and they're dialoguing and they're encouraging Jesus, just like how the angels were trying to strengthen Christ back when he was being tempted in the wilderness. And it's just so cool that they have this reunion, that they, they saw Christ up in heaven, then now they see him on earth in this glorified state, in this transfigured state. And this is what is funny, because immediately after this, Peter answers, which is weird, because there was no question. Yet in verse 5, it says, and Peter answered and said, Rabbi, it's good for uh, us to be here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Again, there was no questions that were being asked, but for whatever reason, Peter decides to answer. And this is, you know, some of us, when we're nervous, we do one of two things. We either don't say anything or we don't stop talking. I'm probably the one in the latter. I, if I'm in an uncomfortable position, I'm not used to silence. I just keep talking until I remove myself from the situation. Peter is like that. He just, he just decided, hey, you know what would be a good idea, guys? Let's make these three booths. Think of booths as like, in more modern context, like churches. Let's build three little churches, and one person could be a leader of this church, another person go to this church, and a third person go to this other church. Now, there's a problem here, because what Peter is doing, he's really putting all three of them in the same pedestal, when really all of them should be bowing to Jesus Christ. There's a stumbling and failing of Peter here again. He's thinking, well, let's just get to the kingdom of God already. Let's just build all this temp- these three booths, these three, these three churches here, and let's just live life like this, up in this mountain with these three. And he failed to remember what Jesus said to him about a week ago, which is that Jesus needs to go to the cross. He, builds, he wants to build these three booths because he wants, just like all the other Jewish people at the time, they want Jesus to reign and rule. And this is close to idolatry. This is, a cl- uh, this is the closest that Peter got to idolatry here. Peter still didn't get it, but yet we know the fact that this is written, it shows you his humility here. Like, I'm just trying to imagine when he's telling Mark to write this down. If I was Mark, I would be chuckling a little bit. Like, did you really not see or get this? Like, look, I was immature back then. I had a little a, a, a childlike understanding of what was going on. Even though I was with Jesus, I did a lot of dumb things, which should give all of us encouragement as believers that there will be moments in our Christian walk where we'll say and do dumb things, but yet God is so gracious that he could still use us. And this was going on here. Peter said that he answered them, and he said that because he was afraid. 
Verse 6, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Again, all of us will probably do this. I mean, the other two were probably horrified and didn't say anything, but Peter was one that spoke up. And, and it was in light of this that when Peter is saying, hey, let's build these three booths, that he needed to be rebuked, which gets to a fourth scene, the affirmation. First scene was the promise, then the unveiling, then the witnesses, now the affirmation, verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them except Jesus alone. We're familiar with God the Father coming in as a cloud, right? When we've gone through the book of Numbers, we are familiar with the text or the narrative where God said that in the day he will be a cloud directing them, giving them shade, and they will follow this cloud, and now he'll be his pillar of fire. In fact, in the Old Testament, it ends with the cloud of God's glory leaving the temple. And here, this cloud returns, and he speaks, he's speaking to the disciples here. He's telling them that this is my beloved son. Again, this is a, it sounds familiar because this was during the time of Jesus' baptism. Remember our message back then when he said the sky ripped open and then the, and the, the people were able to see just for a glimmer just what the, real, the true reality is, that there is this God that's there and, he, and the, the Holy Spirit descended like the Holy Spirit onto Christ. And he said similar things, that this is my beloved son. Now, the difference is that I think the disciples were not there at that time. So this is the first time for them hearing this. And they understood what this term meant. And he commands them to listen to him. And this is listening to him in every sense of the word. I mean, everything from the promises of his death, his resurrection and ascension, everything from the second coming, everything in terms of his moral commands, he's telling the disciples to listen to Jesus. Now, this is a lesson that we need to learn because although we're reading this, he's not just strictly speaking to the disciples here, but he's speaking to us as well. As a Christian, we're called to follow Jesus Christ. We're called to listen to him. When we look at the moral commandments, the things that Jesus has talked about, everything from looking at someone with lust is already considered adultery or, or being angry at someone is considered murder or that if there's anything that causes you to sin, you need to cut off that body part. These are those commands that Jesus gives to the people that we need to take to heart as well. If we truly are worshipers of God, we claim that we worship God, then we need to listen to Jesus Christ. I think in our culture, we claim to worship God, but yet we don't want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. There's this movement now, and just like any movement in every era, there's always this spiritualism that we're they will say that they're spiritual, but they're not religious. You cannot have those things. Those things cannot be separated from one another. Because religion, what they mean is the rules of Scripture, some sort of command, some sort of dogma, some sort of like, guideline that you need to live by. You can't say that you have a relationship with God and not obey the word of God. And the chief command here that God has given to the disciples is to listen to Jesus Christ. And that's a question that you need to ask yourself. Am I following this command from God the Father. 
Am I listening to him in every sense of the word? Am I obeying him or am I making compromises? Am I justifying my own sin? Am I choosing to ignore some things that Jesus said? Jesus said, love your enemies. Oh, okay, I'm cool with that. But, I'm, but forgiving people? No, I'm not cool with those things. You're selective in terms of your obedience, and that's not obedience. That's making a God out of your own image and then worshiping that. God is saying that this is his beloved son. He is a son of God. Listen to him. Again, this is a rebuke here to Peter and for all of us as well, that when we make compromises, we try to do shortcuts in our sanctification, we're not listening to our Savior. In verse 8, and all at once, they looked around and saw no one with them, with them anymore except, except Jesus alone. Just as quick and surprising out of nowhere it seems that these, all, like the cloud or the witness, all of them appear seemingly immediately. They also immediately left. The, God, the cloud of God the Father and the two prophets are gone, and they're left to look and, at Jesus. And it seems like here Jesus went back to the state he was before he was transfigured. It didn't say he kept glowing, but he went back. But what are we supposed to do with this text? What are we supposed to do with this scene? How is this supposed to impact us? Well, I'd like to jump, you guys to jump over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is about 30 years after this event. Peter, who really wrote the Gospel of Mark, and in 2 Peter, his last letter before he gets killed, looks back at this event. 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance uh, as this was made to him by the uh, by made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard the utterances made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. See, this event was so impactful, so influential, so, uh, so imp- it had left a, such a great impression on Peter that he held on to this event that throughout his entire life after Christ ascended from Pentecost to when he was crucified upside down on the cross, he thought back about this event. He thought back to the time when he was on this mountain with the Lord and the God of heaven spoke to him, telling him to listen to Jesus Christ. And what an amazing thing that is because he tells us this in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a, ma- is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What he is saying 
here is that what is more important than even experiencing what he experienced on the mountain is that we are able to read the scriptures, that we're able to read this event, that we have three of the gospel that speaks of this transfiguration. The main point of this text is the fact that we actually have this text to read and to know him. Our world here and the non-believers in the world is obsessed with experiences or evidence, and they think that they, if they have all of these things, that they get to know God through it. They think that as long as they have these experiences or some sort of tangible evidence, that they will worship him. And Peter is saying there is something even greater than the evidence. There's something even greater than the experiences, and that is the word of God. We have God's word, and it is through God's word that we're able to know him, that we're able to worship him. Peter contradicts this notion that we need some sort of external evidence when all the evidence that we need is here in God's word. And understand that we are living in a very privileged time because when Peter wrote 2 Peter, he did not have the whole canon of scripture. The book of Revelation had not been written yet. He doesn't know all the little details of how Christ is going to return and all the way to the eternal state. But we do. And when we look to God's word, whether it's from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's supposed to encourage us to worship him better and more because these things are made more sure. More than being an eyewitness to the to God revealing himself in a transfigured state, more than the experience that he has, is the fact that we have God's word. What is greater than the evidences, what is greater than all the experiences, is scripture itself. We get to relive it over and over and over again every time we open God's word. Every time you engage God's word, you're getting a glimpse of God that is greater than anything that other people will ever be able to know or experience. What is better than being on that mountain is the fact that you can read about the scene in the mountain. This is, your, this is the read your Bible more sermon. The world desperately wants to know God through their senses, but they will never get their senses awakened until they look to the word of God. And what many have longed for, we, get, we often take for granted. We have God's word in our phones, and our tablets, we have the physical Bible, but we don't take enough time to dive into God's word, to war- be worshipful in the way that we engage God's word, and this is why there's such apathy in our spiritual life. It's because we take God's word for granted. God's word is better than your experiences, it's better than all the evidence that we find that proves the Bible. God's word is greater because it gives us a glimpse to the glory of God. And you need to ask yourself, just like I need to ask myself, do we view God's word in this way? Do we trust the word that is given to us, that God has protected for so many years and preserved and gives us hope, not just for this life, but the life that is to come? Is scripture the place that you go to to fellowship with God? Is scripture the place that you go to to learn about God? Does the encounter that you have with God through his word impact you in a way that nothing in this world can? Does God's word influence you in a way that no one else or anything in this world is able to? Does God's word leave a lasting impression on you that makes you look more like Jesus Christ? And I hope that that's less, I hope you understand that's the lesson 
of Mark chapter 9, this transfiguration, all of these four scenes, the story here, it shows us the unveiled Son of God. In this brief moment that we get to relive and reread over and over again, we get to experience just a little bit of what Peter experienced. And we need to, as we read God's word, listen to his son. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. We're so grateful, even though we take your word for granted, that we have your word in its complete canon. Your word is infallible. It is sufficient as everything that we need to know you, Lord. Lord, if there's ever any doubt in our hearts, if there's any time that we struggle in our faith, may we not look to the things of the world or the feelings that's going on in our own hearts, but to look to your word and to meditate on it, to trust it, to, to dwell on it, to live it, Lord. Lord, give us a greater heart to have greater and deeper devotions with you. Lord, help us be disciplined in our Bible reading. Help us be diligent in our Bible memorization. Lord, make us a people that cherish your word more because you are the author of all of Scripture. And it's through your word that we get to know you more. Lord, your word, there's so much to know about you through your word, and there's no way even in this entire lifetime for us to fully grasp everything that this, word, that this word has for us. Lord, make us be faithful to your word, because your word is faithful to us, because you are a faithful God. Lord, thank you for this time in your son's name. Amen. Thank you guys for listening. We have two discussion questions for way of application. First question, how can I dive deeper into my Bible reading this week? And second one, what areas in my life can cause me to look at this world more than the world come.